You seem hungry. Good thing your table is ready with Saturday Omaha. Saturday Omaha. Eat this. Hey, this is Dave with Saturday Omaha, and I am sitting here in the uh, Palatial KILS studios uh, with an awesome guest who has braved the negative, ridiculous wind chill to be here with me to talk about costing and food costing and I'm really excited to learn and uh, also meet our guest and that is Chef James Davis from Metropolitan Community College Culinary Institute. James, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. You do many things for for MCC. I do. I do. Because I think you're in charge of the fine dining program in addition to food costing and other things, but it's going to sound best from you. So what are all the neat things that you're doing for uh, Metro? Um, So, I mean, we all as instructors and faculty, I mean, we all wear a multitude of hats, uh, kind of jacks of all trade, I think. But... um, uh, some of the things that I have, well, this quarter I've got going, um, Baking Basics, which is uh, fun. I get to teach that once a year. So I we have um, dual credit enrollment students. So awesome. High school students who are taking college credit. There are a handful of us in the department that have the certification to teach post-secondary education. Okay, okay. Uh, so I get to sort of dabble with them on a lot of different things and work with them throughout a nine-month period. Um, nutrition, humanities, and food culture occasionally intro to cooking so how to hold a knife how to saute how to bake and roast and and grill and um so uh, you know a lot of different hats and then uh, one of the funner classes that i have and they're all fun honestly but one of the funner ones is uh it's we call it 29.99 it's a practical two so it's the last thing that students take oh before they graduate one of the very last things yeah um and so it's sort of this culmination of show us everything that you've learned over the last however many months or years it took you to get through our program so traditionally two years but yeah we've got some students who've been with us six or seven years and they just kind of take their time and take one class at a time and so yeah i'm so glad that that metro uh we've kind of formed a nice link we had brian o'malley on the show yeah doug crispin's been on the show yep. so glad that you're here you were mentioning kind of the the final exam, if you will, or, mm-hmm. or you know, hey, show us what you can do. I was invited out, I think it was last year, for the pastry, the baking uh, final. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. The work was beautiful. I had to pace myself because I think each uh, student <laughs> had to do like five or six different things, uh-huh. you know, a, a bread, a petit four, and all, all these different things. My gosh, there's just so much stuff, and, and that's wild, which is kind of leads us into our, our food costing as well. Yeah. But twenty twenty ninety nine, you said? Yep. Is that a similar effort there? It is. It is. It's um, more from the savory approach. Gotcha. They, one of the courses they do have to make is a dessert, so they uh-huh. have to prepare uh, for six people uh, a five-course meal. Wow. There's a lot of parameters that we put around it, um, you know, showing – emulsions and different uh, things that they have to show us, but they theme the menu, they cost the menu, they write the recipes, they run nutrition analysis on everything. It, it touches back to everything that they would have picked up Wow! in our program. So Wow. I, I would be remiss too if I didn't ask you as well, besides all these things that you've done at, at Metro and, and your instructorship, how did you kind of land at Metro and maybe what are mm. some of the uh, uh, places or, or things that you did prior or maybe currently even? Yeah, yeah. So it, uh, it, it goes back. I'm actually coming up on 30 years in the industry. 
Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. You so, don't look old enough to be in the industry. I, I, yeah, the gray hair gives it away a I lot. I mean, I got um, a few up here too, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, so I started when I was 14 working at Happy Hollow Country Club. Okay. So I lived right across the street. Yeah. Uh, and it just started as sort of like a, uh, well, really it started as a summer job. Uh-huh. Uh, and my mom just wanted me to you know, like get out of the house and go. <laughs> my <laughs> sister worked there as well as a server. So, and I just started out as a busser, moved into the kitchen really quickly and became a food runner. And so I just kind of sat there and watched everybody for like about three months. Uh, and then one day as a Seems to always happen in the kitchen. Somebody no call, no shows. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was the uh, the pantry guy, the the garmanger salads, desserts. Yeah. And um, our executive chef kind of just out loud said, "Well, who the heck's going to cover pantry?" And uh-huh. I said, "I got it." And I just raised my hand and said, "I've been watching this guy for three months. I can do that." Um, and that's how it started. And I worked there actually through all four years of high school, and never really gave it much thought of a career. Okay. It's just fun and interesting. And I mean, you know, you're playing with fire and knives and you get to create things. And <laughs> yeah. um, I've always been into art. Uh, I studied architecture for a while. Actually, I graduated high school and went into architecture engineering. Oh, awesome. And uh, I was sitting there one day taking uh, one of my final exams in my first two years for engineering. And I kept looking at the clock and looking at the clock. And it, it, it honestly like hit me like light bulb moment that I was looking at the clock because I couldn't wait to leave the exam uh-huh. and go to work. I oh mean, my it, goodness. It sounds like one of those things you see in movies or, 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 you know, reading a, a, a book. It really did. Uh, it hit. Wow. Me. And I didn't even, at that point I thought I'm, I'm done with this architecture engineering. Yeah. Um, I breezed through my exam. Didn't even never looked back. I, uh, <laughs> oh, man. went to work and worked through that night, and then uh, I got home and started doing some research on culinary schools. This was uh, sort of the AOL chat line was about all we had on the internet day. Sure, so yeah. My research was a little more into um, <laughs> kind of books and figuring out what was out there and available. No chat GPT AI for right, you at that time. Right, yeah, yep. yeah. And so through my investigating, I knew that I wanted to get out of Omaha and just experience I'm born and raised here. Sure. Nothing against Omaha. Um, I just wanted to go yeah. and live somewhere else and, and see what life was like somewhere else. So you bet. Started looking at culinary schools. And I came up with uh, the major ones at the time were the Culinary Institute of America up in Hyde Park, New York. Uh, then I looked at Johnson & Wales. Okay. And a lesser known one, uh, Le Cordon Bleu in Scottsdale, Arizona. Nice. Okay. So I sat there and I'm looking at them and I'm kind of with the information I had reviewing their programs and seeing the similarities. And I thought, well, I know I don't like cold weather. <laughs> and so that just kind of steered me towards Scottsdale. Yeah. Um, so I applied and, uh, you know, wrote my, here's why I should be in culinary school letter. And they accepted me. And um, I moved down there actually rather quickly. About two months I had uh, decided and, you know, given notice at my job and moved down there. Uh, and started school right away. Working down there was uh, it was interesting because they have on and off months, which I didn't know. Oh, so I moved down there in April and kind of got through April and found my footing. You know, my parents gave me some money, so I didn't have to get to work right away, and I could focus on school and catch my bearings. And so about mid-May, I thought, all right, I should find some work to do here. And it was, I mean, few and far between because places close 
or have very limited hours June, July, and August. That's their off season because it's so it's the, hot. The heat. So okay, that makes sense. All right. I did find a country club and figured uh, I've done the country club thing, uh, you know, for almost five years. So yeah. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I worked in Carefree, Arizona. It's about 30, 40 minutes north of uh, Scottsdale, right at the base okay. of the mountains. And um, yeah, I, I uh, spent quite a bit of time there. I worked at the Boulders for a little while, um, moved to another resort that had several restaurants on the property. And then uh, I, lo and behold, graduated culinary school and um, you know, two and a half years had gone by, almost three. And I stayed there and worked for a while. And then for some silly reason, I missed home. Aww. I know, I know. I, I, <laughs> I don't know what it was. I missed my friends. I missed my parents. And so I uh, just, I made a call to a chef here in Omaha that I knew previously. I had worked with him at Happy Hollow. That uh, was uh, Chef Gary Hoffman. He was running the Upstream Brewing Company in the old market. So he had left during my time in Arizona. He had left Happy Hollow and moved as executive chef for Upstream. So I called him. I said, Chef, I need a job. He said, all right, when, are you, when can you be here? I've got a job for you. It wasn't anything glorious. I mean, honestly, it was it was a prep cook position. Okay. You know, uh-huh. I've, I've saddled myself with all this culinary school debt. <laughs> um, I'm going to be chopping some vegetables here. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, for about ten seventy five an hour, I think is what ooh, I started. Ooh, at. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I spent uh, a lot of time at Upstream, actually nine and a half years. Wow. In a lot of various roles, prep to line to. I was executive banquet chef for a while, moved to sous chef, executive sous chef. And then we had opened our West location, the legacy yeah. location. Um, and I moved out there uh, as exec chef and ran it. So I had set a goal for myself that I wanted to make executive chef somewhere, anywhere okay. by the age of 30. And I actually nice. beat that. I made it by 27. So Nicely 27, done. I, was running, <laughs> I was running the West Omaha store. Is it um, you I have to thank for that awesome mac and cheese that, that was out there? I was there for its inception. Good yeah, stuff. Yeah, good stuff, yeah, my man. Smoked gouda and ham. Yes. And yeah, oh, yeah. my gosh. So good. During my time at Upstream, though, I have to give a lot of thanks to uh, Gary Hoffman for his uh, mentorship. Yeah. And, and honestly, he's the one who really – I mean, I took food costing classes and Bev costing classes in culinary school like sure. every other culinary student. But he's the one who really hammered it into into my head how important it was, you know, the behind the scenes, down to the penny, running the math on everything. And so that's where I get it from. And I really flourished with it. And so I now you're teaching. I, it. I mean, I just I looked at everything and, and, and saw a little dollar sign attached to it. But I uh, around 2005, while I was at Upstream was asked to go and meet with some instructors and talk to them about a course that they were rewriting. So I think at this time I was about 25. And uh, so I did that and I sat down with a few chefs and uh, had kind of decided to sort of shadow them. And one of them was Chef Michael Rhodes and the other one was uh, Peter Overmeyer was uh, that chef's name. Yeah. And that was under Jim Trebian as our dean. Okay, okay. And so I just, at, at a young age, 25, picked up um, what we call an adjunct. So it's somebody who works in field, but maybe you know, spends one day or one class or something like that teaching. And so I d- I've done that um, for quite a bit of my career, even as I moved from restaurant to restaurant. You know, I went from upstream to Omaha Country Club. And what was s- the strange thing about that was that uh, I was bored. 
Um, nothing against Lionel. He was amazing to work for. But yeah. I went from busy restaurants. You know, I mean, we would serve hundreds of people oh, a day. upstream would get packed too. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I went from that to a country club. Granted, the time of year didn't help. I made my move in February. Very slow time for country clubs. I left there and um, I wound up under uh, Greg Kutchel, Kutchel Management. And they were opening up a, a microbrewery. And I thought, well, I spent nine years with Upstream. I know microbreweries pretty well. Right. Um, and that was rock bottom in the old okay. market. So I went in where the famous Dave's, it's now Jams. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was when I, that was the first job I had that kind of really sent me anywhere. Uh, so they sent me out to Colorado, okay. uh, Denver suburb. And uh, I spent about eight or nine weeks out there. Um, what was interesting is I was teaching once a week. And so in my interview with uh, Kutchel Management, I, yeah. I told them, I said, well, I have to be back here once a week because I teach this class. And they said, oh, sure, that's not a problem. So I flew back every week, taught, well, slept, <laughs> and flew back on the red eye and went straight to the restaurant to work. So, wow, you were like like on a concert tour almost. Yeah, it's just it, like, it, man, it we got like it. Get it on was, the plane again. Yeah, It was, uh, it was fun. It was fun. That's cool. Um, so I opened that restaurant and, and uh, we had some fun. And then uh, kind of out of nowhere, uh, an old uh, friend of mine from the upstream, uh, his name was Joe Rosner, he called me and he had left Kona Grill out on, I think, New Jersey. And he called me and he was moving back here to open up a restaurant and he was looking for an executive chef. And that was Crave yeah. in Midtown Crossing. Yeah. So, and I thought about it and I talked to their their uh, COO. Their hub is uh, Minneapolis. Okay. And so he said, well, you know, this we want to open this restaurant in October. I think at this time it was maybe late June, mid to early July. And so we had to move really fast. And yeah. so I gave my notice, took the job. I think I was in Minneapolis about a week later. And I spent a good like eight weeks up there as well. That was a, it was a really fun restaurant group to work for. Um, That's it was awesome. the first restaurant I'd ever experienced where our corporate executive chef was adamant. And he said, no microwave. Nice. We nice. won't have a microwave. We won't have one. We won't put it. He said, if we can't heat it up traditionally when it doesn't belong on our menu. Nice. Since I've learned that there are there are certain things, some of my own instructors will sort of uh, kind of counter that with me and say, but there are certain things that you can't replicate in any other kind of cooking device. That's, that's fine. That's fair. So yeah, I spent uh, about two and a half years with Crave and then I got a phone call of a restaurant here in Omaha that was looking for an executive chef that they wanted to have as co-owner partner. Nice. And I wasn't looking for a job at the time. Um, I was happy. I was um, in a good rhythm at Crave, and I loved what we were doing. I was learning tons about sushi, and you know, I spent a lot of time with our corporate sushi chef. So I really did love running that restaurant. But uh, I thought, well, talk is cheap. I'll go see uh, what this offer is all about. And so I, I met with the uh, the three partners from uh, Mark's Bistro. In, oh yeah, yeah, uh, in yeah. Dundee. In Dundee, sure. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I mean, we hit it off really well. We spent an afternoon um, just chatting and talking about everything and um, my sort of philosophy on management and food styles and um, all of that. And next thing I knew, I accepted a job offer with them. Uh huh. Keep in mind the whole time as I'm changing jobs, you know, every couple of years, I'm still teaching. You're still teaching. <laughs> so I still have that, that tie to everybody yes. that's there. And so I I, uh, I took the job at Marks and I was there for about five and a half years. So it was early 2018, 
and uh, a uh, a position became available at Metro, right? Um, a full time faculty position. Okay. Uh-huh. And uh, it finally. Kind of like on the last day that the job posting was available, I filled everything out and submitted it and just thought, well, we'll see. Again, it was the same premise of kind of talk is cheap, but I knew that I love teaching and I, I've always taken that into every kitchen I've ever worked in. It's awesome. Is to, to take the time with people because everyone else has always taken their time with me, right? Mm, mm-hmm. um, from culinary school to every place I've ever worked, the chefs and mentors that I've had who taught me what I know now um, it's selfish if I just hold on to it. I have to give that, love that back. And I love doing it. I really do. I have five children, so I, I, I have a level of patience that I think is required <laughs> in those situations. Yeah. So I applied for the job and went through. It was honestly, of all the jobs I've, I've had, it was the most intense interview process I've ever had. It was intense. I mean, I had to uh, build a class that didn't exist, give a PowerPoint presentation on the class that didn't exist, lead a lab structure with uh, volunteer students. Keep in mind the whole time there's uh, faculty is watching me in pen and paper and taking notes. And right. so it was very, very... Um, Just intense. It was intense, yeah. And it was it made me nervous. I thought, what? I've, I've, in all these places I've worked, I've never felt uh, nervous like that. But yeah. I, 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 you know, at the end of the interview process, I thought it made me that nervous for a reason. It's because I think I want this job. And so that's where I've been now since uh, kind of late 2018, 2019. I'm coming up on five years full time here. Let's kind of move into the food costing thing. Let's start with the classroom portion of things. What's the structure? What goes into food costing? And, and give me oh. the rundown. <laughs> oh, wow. Where do I start? So the standard food cost for a restaurant. Uh, is around 32%. And so what that means is 32% of the plate uh-huh. is your cost. And so everything else should be free and clear income is okay. really how restaurants operate it. That's sort of the benchmark, 32 33%, depending on where you're at. Country clubs really don't care about food cost because their audience is paid for their membership, right? Gotcha. So country clubs run more around 44, 45 to 55% food cost, and that's really good for them. And is that per dish of like my dish yes. is $10, then 32% of that $10 should be to pay for the food that is on the plate. Correct, the okay. cost of the got food it. on the plate. Got it, yep. got it, okay. Yep. What gets interesting is when you start to run lower than that, uh, most of the places I've worked, I've shot for about a 28 to 29%, mm, Okay, um, which is a, stronger profit margin but harder target to hit it's uh it's an interesting dance right so uh, the thing that that food cost doesn't cover is it doesn't cover anything else so it doesn't cover any of your overheads right keeping the lights on the gas bill the water bill the labor cost which is a separate cost together sure beverage cost those are all separate and so when you look at those uh, in the grand scheme of things in a restaurant setting it's you're going to look at them on a PNL statement, a profit and loss profit statement. And loss. Okay, and you know you make informed decisions from that. So restaurants will usually should look at them uh, monthly. Mm-hmm. I looked at them daily. Wow, because I just was obsessed with controlling those numbers. Yeah, um, a lot of restaurants, and maybe this is the sort of bait and switch, dangle the carrot, is when you have younger sous chefs or new chefs, you 
are doing a, a good job to set them up or you're doing something right to set them up on a, a quarterly bonus program. Sure, okay. So if you hit these numbers or do better, bonus kicks in um, and who doesn't like more money? Right, right. So good that's motivator. another reason I always chased it. So. Yeah. You know, if a chef says, I really want to make this one thing, but it's really expensive, do you, you know, like, okay, my cost is <laughs> going to be a lot more to make this dish. Mm. And then I try to balance that mm -hmm. out by having something cost a little bit less on another yes. dish? Or yep. like So that's where you're looking at something else, but it's called a menu mix mm. or a P okay. mix, a product mix. Okay. And so you've got things like, I, I can tell you from Mark's, right? When I worked at Mark's for five and a half years, we would look at these numbers all the time. Yeah. And we had the mac and cheese. Yeah. If you've ever been to Mark's, everybody within earshot talks about the mac and cheese. The mac and cheese was extremely inexpensive. Sure. And so it actually ran at something like an 18 or 20% food cost. Yeah. And so when you look at a product mix analysis, and then I, there were dishes that, of course, that I would want to put on the menu or run as a special that I knew were, you know, high quality ingredients. But there is a threshold in any area, uh, Omaha notwithstanding, where people just won't pay $60 for Chilean sea bass. I mean, yes, it's Chilean sea bass, but it's just too much. It's just too expensive. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And so you've got to kind of balance that. And so what you do is knowing that your mac and cheese, right, for example, is gonna, you're gonna sell 100 of them probably on a Friday night, and you're gonna sell 30 of those sea bass. You know people won't pay 60, but you kind of know after a while the threshold of, okay, they will pay 45 or something like that. So you know you don't hit the target profit margin on it. It's just that kind of delicate balance that you, that you strike in restaurants. Wow. So for me now, a lot of what I look at in running um, the bistro for dinner at, at MCC yeah. is um, locality. I don't like to put anything on the menu um, that took a long time, a train ride and a plane ride to get here. <laughs> it's kind of strange when you when you look at restaurants and when you look at um, even when you're shopping, you know, uh, for yourself or home, those local seasonal or artisanal organic products are way more expensive than uh, the mass produced produce that you find. Sure. So there's a balance to that too. The P&L sheets, the profit and loss mm -hmm. sheets, um, obviously we're in the audio medium, but uh, if you're going to look at one of those, what what do you typically see on a P&L sheet when you're mm. looking at that daily? Like what is, what are you looking I mean, for? They are, um, I've had PL sheets that are pages long and it just it lists every line item of your business. Labor cost and, and you can drill down on things like that. I mean, you can look at labor cost as a whole. You can look at um, what did we pay our hosts? So it kind of depends on what program and software you're using, mm -hmm. but you can drill into um, what are our salad sales? What are our soup sales? How much butter did we use? I mean, you can drill down to just some of the most minute things, um, wow. which is really handy because if you find yourself in a situation where you're scratching your head and you're going, well, my costs are high. Why did I run a, a 34% last, last month? And, you know, so you've got to do some investigating and some digging. Um, one of the other things that is huge, and I do this at home all the time, is you have to sort of, uh, I'm going to say bargain shop or not bargain shop, but um, keep your competitors competing. And so by that, I mean the big food houses, right? The big ones of Omaha. I mean, I've had up to 30 different reps that I've bought from, right? And some of those are just local farmers. Um, 
uh, Dutch Girl Farms, uh, you know, Kevin and, and uh, the, the Loths at the time. Um, I would buy just produce from them and just goat cheese from them. And Le Cordier, we would get just baguettes. Oh, yeah. And, and there's also so many things you have to take into account in restaurants where is it cheaper for me to buy in a pre-made product? And save on the labor side, or do I bring in? You know, do I bring in the yeast and and the flour and make the baguette myself? Do I have the labor for that? Do I have the space for that? So um, there's so many different things that uh, can go wrong in a restaurant and can can yeah can be get out of control really quick. And next thing you know, you're losing money. So you're checking these almost daily. <laughs> yeah. Did you look at each individual line every day or were there certain things that maybe you concentrated on because yeah. that, I, that sounds like it might drive you nuts if you had to oh, look at sure. every single line? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a lot of things that I would uh, skim past. It, really what I would look at is your controllables, right? So mm. your your food purchases mm-hmm. and your labor cost. For a long time now, we have had sort of a model that most restaurants run off of where of every dollar spent – and we're talking about the most wired tight, squeeze in every penny that you can mm. sort of establishment mm-hmm. um, without sacrificing product or quality of anything. Sure, sure. Where of every dollar spent, about seven cents actually goes to the bank. So that means wow. you pay back 93 cents on every dollar in food, labor, lights, you name it. Wow. Those are the best run restaurants that are doing it. Uh, I should, I guess, maybe say ethically, right? You can sure. run a really low food cost and sell somebody a, you can call it a Wagyu hot dog, but maybe really it's Oscar <laughs> Mayer and you're charging $40. And if someone's buying it, okay, you're making a lot of money. Only seven cents on the dollar. And that's optimally, that's in a yeah. good, tightly run. Yep. Like right now, you know, we've had a weather event. I know a lot of restaurants have, have had to close. That really just has to disrupt Everything. Oh, it's got to be just super challenging to do. It does. With. It does. And this is a hard time of year historically in Omaha. Yeah. Because you're kind of in this lull moment where everybody's spent more than they meant to over the holidays. Right. They probably went out for New Year's, but now the next big thing isn't until yeah. Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is coming. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And the other hard part that I found in this time of year is sort of the January to maybe mid to late March uh-huh. is where. Traditionally, sales are lower than it's the lowest sales time of any year, but it's also the time of year where you need to be ramping up and training and retaining staff. Oh, to get ready. You're walking into patio season next in most yeah. restaurants. I mean, you double your seating as soon as it gets nice and the flowers start blooming, people are out. So it's a it's a real balance on the labor side. And then when you're constructing a dish or a menu or things like that for the restaurant, mm-hmm. how do you start? costing that out what does that look like there's a few different ways to go about it you always have to start somewhere so generally i would start with um trying to find the balance on the menu right where you want to find uh how are our vegetarian options what are our beef options like i mean it's nebraska you've got to have beef right um so you've got to look at all those and and are we do it do i think or do we think we're balanced well on the menu um, and so that's going to inform new menu decisions. But kind of starting with your, you're going to have a, an idea in your head that you start to work with. And so generally what I've done is, you know, doing some research and saying, okay, well, let's do um, a pork tenderloin dish on the menu. Uh-huh. And before I even start, uh, A, do we need a pork tenderloin dish on the <laughs> menu? And then B, what is the current price of pork tenderloin? 
and then also following those markets uh, yeah. is a is a great idea. Just so you know, I mean, beef goes up every summer. It's barbecue season. It's grilling season. And so knowing that, maybe you don't want the 22-ounce porterhouse on your menu in June, July, and August. Maybe you want it on your menu in December, January, February ah, when yeah. the, you know, the beef market tapers off a little bit. A but little let's bit. be honest, things don't really go back down in price anymore, it no, seems like. it's like taxes. They just keep going up. Right, right. <laughs> um, so some of that comes into play. But um, I think what's really important is to have just good, open, honest communication with your vendors. Mm. So you're going to have food reps from all of these vendors. And so having those weekly meetings with them, they'll come to you with a ton of information that maybe you're not aware of. Hey, there's a bad hail storm in Yuma and the romaine market's going to be crap for the next six weeks. Do you want to stick with it? Maybe change your salad on the menu. It's things that you don't think chefs need to pay attention to, but you really do. You've got to watch the weather. Um, I mean, in our our economy and our market, um, you've got to know what's going on in Yuma, Arizona, because it's going to affect your your menu price and your profitability and your ability to stay open. As we've been working through this too, and you know, the whole time you're you're still executive chef. I'm assuming you're still doing things on the line and still you oh, know yeah. coaching and mentoring and yeah. dealing directly with the food. In addition to now you are an accountant math expert sitting back in the office comparing profit and loss sheets, calling vendors Correct. going, hey, listen, this this romaine's kind of crazy. Bring me some butter lettuce this week or something, yeah. you know, so goodness. I mean, it's a- it's long days and it's uh, you wear a lot of hats, wow. right? I mean, I can remember uh, floor drains backing up on a Friday at six o'clock and you're not going to get anybody out there to fix it right away. You're if you the are, plumber you're paying, now. You're paying them three. Yeah, so you're a plumber. Um, you have, you know, young um, people who have personal problems that come to you and vent and want your yeah. opinion. And so you have those private conversations. So all of a sudden now you're your counselor, you're mentor, counselor. coach. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you wear a lot of hats, but um, it's rewarding. I mean, there, there's yeah. a saying that you, as a manager, you make a decision whether it's right or wrong about every 30 seconds in this industry. And that's pretty accurate. So when you're looking at a dish on the menu, so we we're talking about our, mm. our pork tenderloin, yeah. you have to decide what to, to price that at. How do you determine what the going rate is? Are you looking at other mm. restaurants' menus or like you just kind of know? We're like, what? At, let's start there. How do you there's, figure out the ballpark? There's some of that. You, you, uh, you don't want to price yourself out of your own market. Sure. So if you have a dish that is fairly common, if pork tenderloin is fairly common on restaurant menus, then maybe do a little shopping around, but that wouldn't be the only thing that I would look at, right? I would look at the high end, so maybe checking cities like Chicago, New York, and granted, preparation, what kind of pork are they buying? Is it Kurobudo or something, you know, Mangalitsa, something really high end? The great thing that I've always found in restaurants, when you're developing menus for, maybe you're running a spring menu, and then it changes for summer, and then it's so... Like at Mark's, we would change it uh, three to four times a year. Running specials is just a great Ooh, sounding board. Test right? the waters a little right. bit. So yeah. you take that pork tenderloin dish and create version one. Uh-huh. It's going to go through 27 changes before you sure. actually menu it. Um, but you're getting sort of instant feedback and going out hmm. and talking to the guests. Hey, what did you think? What was we're thinking about putting it on a menu? Do you think it's something you really you have to have that that communication with them? But it also tells you, are people willing to to pay that price? Is it perceived value at $25? I don't know. And if, you know, you go through a Friday night or a good, decent, busy night in restaurants, 
And you only sold a handful of them. You got to sit back and go, all right, is it the dish? Is it the price? Mm. Is it? And so you go back to the drawing board and reevaluate. And so that's how I've always tested the waters for new menu ideas. A lot of new menu ideas is just yeah. the ability to run them as a daily special. And then when you're looking at actually costing out that dish, so you're looking at the price of pork, but then, you know, you probably need salt and pepper and mm -hmm. I'm going to need to make a gravy and side dishes. So now yeah. how do you start getting all the way down to like the salt? Yeah, <laughs> no, and uh, um, that's very real. A lot of chefs struggle with that, but uh, you, you just, I mean, you've got to know your pricing. You've got to, again, control your pricing. As a chef, you've also got to watch your invoices because it's really common to, you know, one week you're buying, I don't know, micro carrots for eight bucks a pound yeah. and then the next week you're not watching, but it's eight fifteen a pound. Mm. The following week it's eight twenty five, and uh -huh. then, so those prices can creep up on you. And, and next thing you know, you're scratching your head, going, "Why is my food cost look like this?" <laughs> um, but yeah, you've got to you've got to figure out your portion and what the final plate looks like, and you just you have to you've got to do the math all the way through it um, and keep things relative to the way you purchase them, right? So mm. if you're buying carrots by weight, you want to cost them by what's the per ounce cost. Maybe uh -huh. you got to break it down to that. So about 50 pounds um, of carrots and I'm putting uh, four ounces on this right. plate. So that costs this yep. much. Yep. Okay. And I mean, you can get into things like uh, the yield analysis of it all. Um, the pork tenderloin, you're going to do some trimming. There's not a lot, of, like you said, not a lot of fat on it, but there's silver skin. So you've got to cut that away mm -hmm. and know that at best you're going to get 85 or 90% yield on it. So that all of a sudden raises your, your price before you've even cooked it and put it on the plate. Yeah. To answer your question about the salt, because that gets tricky, right? That gets very, I mean, when you get down to one sixteenth of a teaspoon of salt, right. they don't even make a sixteenth teaspoon. How do you cost right, that? Right. <laughs> um, so when it gets to those really small things, one of the, the most unique things I've ever learned, and I, I haven't seen it in a lot of restaurants, but it's something I've carried with me everywhere I've gone. It's been called, and you can read about it and do some research. Some, some chefs and restaurants follow it. Uh, it's called the Q factor. Okay. And so the Q factor is all of the little uncontrollable things. Mm, okay. Like, do you have salt and pepper shakers on the table? Are there sugar packets on the table? Are you putting ketchup with the fries? Or is the guest asking for ah. ketchup? Is there a ketchup bottle on the table? And so those are all what we call Q factors, kind of the uncontrollables. Yeah. But they're still food. Right. And so it's coming out of your food budget and you have to control those. So. If you're costing, I'm going to switch it up. If you're costing a burger and fries, nine out of 10 of us, probably more than that, are going to want to catch up with our fries. Yes, please. So you can either cost the per ounce and attach that to the price of the burger, or you can just lump it a little bit and call it the Q factor. Ah. Uh, so it depends on the dish. But when it comes to like the saute cook seasoning the pork with kosher salt and black pepper, it's a Q factor thing for me because it's such a small amount, but you know that over time, and the thing that happens in restaurants is don't watch the dollars, watch the pennies and the nickels, mm -hmm. right? The profits in the corners, if you've ever heard that one. So it's, uh, and it's totally true. Uh, so the Q factor, like pretty much every dish I've ever costed, the, my Q factor would round out at about 12 to 14 cents, depending on what might go on the dish. Okay. okay. And so that gets tacked onto your final price, and then you run food cost analysis from that. When you're food costing too, is there an amount of loss that you factor for also? If somebody mm. burns a dish or uh, drops one, or is it's, there a um, Z factor in there somewhere that goes with your Q? <laughs> there, um, it's not a bad idea, actually. I've, I've uh, um, 
never never ran one that way. Just gotcha. uh, our industry is pretty unforgiving in a lot of ways. Sure. The line cook, line chef that overcooks the pork or drops it on the floor. Yeah. You hope it's just a one off. Right. But, uh, right. I mean if it turns into you know, two or three of these came back. They're over seasoned or they're raw in the middle. Steaks are one of the hardest. Everybody's um, everybody's perception of medium rare is a little yeah. <laughs> bit different. It is a little bit different, and it's affected by like the lighting in the restaurant. It too. absolutely is. It darker? Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so man. that's always. Um, there's no known that I know of anyway. There's no known C factors. You put it. Although gotcha. maybe there should be. I like that the Q factor kind of covers those those small things. Mm-hmm. That's, you start thinking about things like straws and napkins and lids oh. and sugar packets and right. and those things can get really crazy too. Some of those are your non-foods. Gotcha. That's, okay, which is another category. Another category piano. entirely. Yep. So the the price of of paper napkins to serve with this dish or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like Stella's and Bellevue goes through a ton of napkins because they don't have plates. That's, right. That's they their move. The, so that's they wrap in the the bev naps. Yes. The napkins. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, how do the costs of the individual dishes come together for the cost of the full menu, or do you look at it on an individual dish? Basis. I don't yeah. know if I'm asking that question well. Yeah, yeah. That's um, that's your menu mix analysis, that P-mix that I was ah, talking about. Ah, okay. So when you swap a menu and change, and maybe you change from uh, fall into winter or winter into spring, yeah. and you've got a significant menu change, um, you're going to be watching the product mix analysis, that P-mix report, like crazy. Every day, every night, I would run one at the end of the night and say, all right, what did, I, what did we sell? And I would take a paper copy of the menu Every day, like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, line them out on my desk. Yeah. And I would write next to each dish, you know, 12% of sales was this mm. item and 13 to this one. And, oh, this one's only 4%. And so you've got some of those things that are, you know, you call them like a, like a dog on the menu or a sleeping dog. You know, you've got to ask yourself like, well, it, it hits a certain demographic. And the thing I think about is maybe a vegan dish that maybe you're not running a vegan restaurant, but you have a vegan dish on the menu and Mm -hmm. it does sell and Mm -hmm. it's delicious, but it's not a, you know, it's not your top selling item. So you've got to scratch your head and go, does it belong? Should I change it? Should I leave it alone? You've got to, you've got to analyze it that way. Right. Um, But after a menu change, I would even run a, a, a product mix report after a lunch service and then run another one after dinner service. Oh, interesting. So after a menu change, I would live at the restaurant. When you looked at those reports, rough estimate, how much time per day are you <laughs> looking at this? Because it's, I know it's not five minutes. It's no. going to be longer than that. No, it's not. Um, I mean, at first, um, when I was kind of first introduced to them, I, I really, it was kind of like reading a foreign language at first. I bet. Um, and so just over time, and really it took months before I felt comfortable looking at them. And yeah. it took even more time than that before I felt really comfortable diagnosing them if yeah. there's an issue, right? If you're in the red on a certain line item category, um, yeah, how do you chase that down? Again, it just, for me, it came back to somebody taking the time mm. to sit with me in a weekly manager meeting. You know, and it, it wasn't just me. It was uh, myself and uh, um, a good friend of mine was uh, also sous chef at the time. So we were mm-hmm. sort of sous chef and sous chef. Nice. Um, and he, you know, we went to the same culinary school and grew up together here in Omaha moved to the Southwest. We moved back at almost virtually the same time. Oh, I mean, wow. We were tied together for quite some time. Yeah. He's a great guy. And so us learning those together, like I didn't feel like the only person in the room who didn't know what the heck was going on. Right. Um, but it, it took some time. And so 
at first it you know you're looking at it for an hour and maybe barely figuring something out and then you're you're looking at the the EBITDA line and going what is this and why do I care about earnings before interest and taxes and depreciation and all that and yeah it just uh, it took some time but um, I think as the years and decades went on I mean I could sit down with a full P&L um, at the end of a service after a menu change and really I mean I could go through it in probably 15 or 20 minutes wow. and have my head all the way around where every penny was coming and going. Goodness. And then in addition to that being the plumber, electrician, the sign guy out front, whatever <laughs> yes. you need on yeah. top of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, all, I mean, just leading the shift as well. You yeah. Know? It's just a, yeah. Uh, it's a dance. It's um, my business, one of my business partners at Mark's, uh, Mark Kluhacek, he would liken it to uh, running um, a play or a theater. And he wasn't wrong in that, that if you were the conductor, you had your head on a swivel and you had just a lot of things going on. I know I was talking to uh, uh, Alfie Cascio of, of Cascio's yeah. and yeah. Uh, in addition to all those things we talked about, he said it numerous times he's had to run out of the back and if somebody was like choking on something, he'd have to do the Heimlich like on top of it. It's like your medic on top of everything else. He's not wrong, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I stayed on top of CPR certification and uh, yeah. Now, moving all of that then, yeah. How do you? How does somebody apply some of these things at home? At like, home. what are some easy things they can do? Because they probably don't have the same P and L software. I'm right, sure you can right. get things, but yeah, maybe not as readily. You available. can. I mean, there. You know, the technologies um, for all the the negatives. There's a lot of positives that yeah. come out of it, right? And so there's a lot of good uh, little things that you can use at home. I've tried some of them. They kind of slow me down a little bit. Mm. One of the things that I do that drives my wife nuts uh, <laughs> is I do like a cost analysis on grocery stores. Ah. So if I'm building my my shopping list, right? Uh-huh. We try and uh, well now since COVID, really we've taken advantage of uh, online ordering and grocery deliveries. Sure. Yeah, you bet. Um, on my laptop, I'll have Bakers and Hy-Vee and Walmart and Target and Whole Foods. I'll have them all open. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, who's got the, you know, the better price on red onions this week? And yeah. So I shop that way and it, she rolls her eyes so hard. But um, So that's one of the things that I recommend uh-huh. um, if you have the time, right? The other thing that I, I and I, I tell my students this in nutrition class a lot, is um, stick to the outside perimeter of the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Right, that's where your your deli is, is, all of your fresh produce is. It's when you get into the center aisles that uh-huh. you're buying convenience products that also, generally speaking, aren't really good for you. Right, they're high in sodium and things like that. Yeah, a lot um, more preservatives and yeah. So yeah, and, and it's it's tough. I mean, we live such a fast paced lifestyle. True. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I get it. We just don't. We don't have time. Right, everybody's so um, busy. It's nobody has time to go home and cook a two-hour meal and then clean for an hour and a half afterwards. Right. You scrub pots and pans and run the dishwasher, and so it's hard. So, quick thirty-minute meals I think are great mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you can. Crockpot stuff is fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, if you can sort of meal prep out, th- those are all things that will help. Being aware of what you buy is an interesting thing. Uh, and mm. I'm guilty of this at home too, right? Things get pushed to the back of the fridge uh-huh. and then you find it past its prime and you go, oh, geez, <laughs> guilty. There's, guilty. there's that kale. Wow, look at that, yeah. right? Yeah. Or, <laughs> Didn't know it could turn that color. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so being aware of that is is also something to take in mind. Anything you can do to like um, maybe 
by the whole product as opposed to the fabricated. And when I when I say that, I'm really thinking about meat, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the the big ones that stand out to me are buying a whole chicken mm-hmm. versus buying the chicken breast or the chicken thigh because um, you're paying for that fabrication process, right? So a whole chicken per pound price is way cheaper. Mm-hmm. Now, it may change the dish, right? I'm uh, because I only get two chicken breasts and two thighs and two wings and I'm feeding a family of, you know, seven. Right. Um, so not everybody's going to get chicken breast tonight. Right. So it may change the way you, the dish you make. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it turns more into a stew or pasta dishes I'm a huge fan of. The other one that always comes to mind is uh, pork loin. I like to buy those at uh, Costco. Yeah. They're ungodly cheap. I just bought one this weekend. It's, you know, five or six pounds and it's 20 bucks. Nice. Um, and then just take that and cut it into sort of meal-sized mm, mm-hmm. roasts. Yeah. And then freeze, right? And so then you're just taking out one at a time. Sous vide cooking has been a lifesaver for me. Nice. Um, I can treat it sort of like um, had some relatives in town over uh, our holiday break. Uh-huh. And they wanted steak for dinner. And so I shopped around, and I mean, filet, yes, delicious. Right. Ribeye, yes, delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, all pretty pricey. It's not like you're going to really get a, three or four dinners out of it. It's a one shot. That's yeah, dinner tonight. Yeah. And so I bought some, um, I think it was a, like a Black Angus top sirloin. Uh huh. And top sirloin, while it's delicious and full of flavor, is sort of notorious for being a little tougher and chewier, mm-hmm. right? If you cryovacuum and sous vide them two, three hours at 128 degrees, yeah, they will cut like butter. Awesome. Right? So things like that, from a restaurant standpoint, leading into home, you've got a lot of these things that are really coming into play now that used to be sort of chef secrets, mm. right? Like the hanger steak, the flat iron steak was like oh, this yeah. hidden gem for a long time. Um, and so once those start to get used more and more in restaurants. The culotte is kind of the one now, uh, which comes from the hind quarter and um, it's delicious, but you're going to be paying ribeye filet prices on it, mm. you know, after a year or two. Yeah. Um, chefs find them, they use them in restaurants. You have a great sort of markup on them where you like run an, an amazing profit on them. The rest of the world catches up and the next <laughs> thing you know, it's in the grocery store aisle for $15 a pound and you're scratching your head going, all right, what's the next thing that I switch out? So Yeah. Well, nice. I suppose, too, keeping your waste to a minimum is probably a good oh, thing or repurposing leftovers. Like, you know, if it, if it is, you know, you do that whole chicken one day and you got some leftover right. chicken, maybe it's chicken burritos yep. um, and those, you know, the like cryovac or food savers and, and your freezer are, are good moves. And, yeah. you know, um, and they're not that expensive anymore. Nice. Uh, they've come way down in price. So I think I bought a little sous vide circulator and a uh, cryovac machine yeah. off of Amazon. And I, I, I don't think I spent over 70 bucks for both of them. I'm going to put together a, a dinner party for a, mm. a decent number of guests. So maybe, I don't know, 15 people or, okay. or, or 20 people or something like that. So what might be my strategy on figuring out my my food cost, or I'm mm. going to lay this out. How might you approach that, chef? That's uh, that's always a good one. Yeah. Um, people run into this problem all the time, right? And uh, so, honestly, the first thing I would do is maybe take into account 
how big is my space? Mm. Which is maybe not, I don't know, uh, not where most people would approach, but I would look at it and think, can I really pull off fabricating X, Y, and Z and making seven courses? And do I have the plates for that? Do I have the silverware for that? Do I have to stop and watch silverware in the middle of the meal? Do I want to sit down and enjoy it with them? Or am I playing chef all night and going to be in the kitchen? Yeah. So that's where if I wanted to sit down and enjoy company, I'd probably do something sort of uh, family style platter service, um, something that can just be set out a roasted Mm. chicken or beef bourguignon or something that can just be ladled and you can actually sit and enjoy. So that's a lot of prep done prior to the party. What's my budget? Is it going to break the bank if I buy a whole tenderloin and carve that on, you know, table side? Right. Um, if it is, then maybe I look at um, a cheaper cut, right? Like a, a beef terrace major is a nice mm. one. It's sort of known as like a petite tenderloin. Okay. It has a, a shape of tenderloin and has very similar flavor and not a lot of fat inside. Um, it's a tender enough steak. You can just throw it on the grill and it's great in the summertime. Nice. Um, but if tenderloin is within my budget and money's not really a concern, then I would still look at how I want to do, what's my role in the party? Do I want to <laughs> play chef or play guest as well? So that's yeah. probably where I would start. We call it in restaurants, we call it sort of Russian platter service, which is a service style. And we all do this at home. We just don't call it that, right? But we set out a big platter of food and everybody sort of helps themselves and serves themselves. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's probably where I would start. Again, convenience products sometimes are helpful in those moments, right? Where, well, I mean, chopped frozen vegetables, maybe that's something that you can do and you can buy those in larger bags. So that might be a a convenience thing that might work. Yep. And if you treat them right, right? If you cook them correctly, quality doesn't suffer. They don't come out mushy. Usually that requires sort of like, to your example, frozen vegetables is, you know, pretty high heat. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a quick little steam or something, but higher heat, like you don't want to, don't throw them in a cold pan mm. and turn the pan on and expect it to get really hot, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so just knowing how to treat those products is helpful as well. But you, you got to get in the kitchen and play, which I see more and more people doing nowadays. I think COVID really, you know, you're locked in your house and you've got all these people who are all of a sudden interested in starters and making right. sourdoughs and breads and uh, pickling and fermenting things. Like those are old school methods of food cooking and preservation. Yeah. That we're kind of on the brink of being extinct. For sure. Honestly. Like our grandparents knew how to do yeah. it. They just kind of yeah. started how dying. Do you, yeah. you know, grow a carrot or a tomato. How do you can a tomato? Pre-COVID, I think that number was very, very low on people knowing how to properly can a tomato. Post-COVID, I think it's expanded tremendously. Well, this has been awesome. I've I've learned a lot. It was so nice to to finally meet you in person yeah. and yeah. and learn about what you're great. doing for MCC, your history, how food costing works, and and things that you think about, and yet another dimension to being a chef in the restaurant industry that maybe some people don't think about because I I think a lot of people focus purely on direct food preparation aspect. Right. Maybe don't think that, oh, I'm going to have to do some math back here too. Tons of math. Tons of math. Yeah. Well, Chef James Davis, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for taking your time. And it was such a pleasure having you here. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been great. Well, fantastic. Well, we will sign it off here. And as we say, until we eat again, stay hungry. Bye. Our show is recorded and produced by Fatterday Omaha. 
You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, as well as email FatterdayOmaha at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and stay hungry. Saturday Omaha. Eat this. <laughs>